Welcome to Journey in the Word with Pastor Randy Mosher of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. We are located in Hagerstown, Maryland. Please join us every weekday as our pastor takes us verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Today, we're finishing up in chapter 14 of Revelation, listening to the proclamation of the angel and recognizing that we are all without excuse. So if you're able, grab your Bibles and join us as we continue our journey in the Word. Well, that's the the role of this first angel. Number one, to preach the gospel to the whole world. Number two, to call the whole world to a decision regarding the gospel that they've heard preached to them, warning them of the things to come in the future of those who reject the truth that's being shared with them. But John now goes introduce us to a second angel. Look at verse 8. He says, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. John now describes a second angel, which he says he sees flying around the world with a different message than the first one. And this angel is letting the whole world know that Babylon is fallen, is fallen. What's this angel talking about? What Babylon is he talking about that is fallen like this? Well, it can't be, he can't be referring to the ancient empire of Babylon because that Babylon has already come and gone from the world scene long before John ever recorded these words as Jesus was giving him this revelation. Therefore, this angel must be talking about a different Babylon, a Babylon that will exist in some future sense at some point in the future during the time when these events that we're now studying here in Revelation will be taking place. Uh, really a Babylon that will be somehow connected to Antichrist and to the false prophet, which we'll see later on in our studies. But in the scriptures, Babylon is always a reference. It's, it's always referenced in one of two contexts. It's either referenced in a physical context or in a spiritual context. Now, in the physical context, it refers to the actual city and then to the empire of Babylon. Babylon was initially a city that was established by a guy by the name of Nimrod. Anybody remember the account of Nimrod in Genesis chapter 10? But it was, it, it was begun by this guy, Nimrod. And Nimrod was a guy who the scriptures paint as being a rather evil and, and very vile kind of man. The account of Genesis tells us that he was mighty on the earth. In other words, he was a very powerful ruler. And we're also told in Genesis that he was, might, he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, some people relate to that and say, well, I'm a mighty hunter around here. You know, I go deer hunting and, you know, no, that's not actually what that's referring to. What it's referring to in the Hebrew, it literally means mighty hunter. It doesn't have to do with hunting wild game. You know what it has to do with? Hunting men, hunting men, hunting people. In other words, it's a characterization that describes him as being ruthless and a cold-blooded killer maybe even a serial killer of sorts. And, and that's what likely made him so mighty and gave him his position of power on the earth because he was so fearsome a man that he used his fearsome power to establish a kingdom for himself and to bring people into subjection to himself. In many ways, he's an Old Testament prefiguring of who? Antichrist, right? He's an Old Testament prefiguring of Antichrist. Now, the Bible also tells us that one of the key cities of of the kingdom that he established was the ancient city of Babel, which later became known as Babylon. And most of you are probably familiar with the story about Babel or the account of Babel, but it's a city where the people tried to build a tower that reached into the heavens. And we're told in Genesis 11 and verse 4, and they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. 
So even though Nimrod isn't specifically mentioned in, by name in this account, it's safe to assume based on the reference given to us in Genesis 10 that he's the one that led the effort to build the tower in that city. And, and, and this is more than a simple building project. These people in Babel, led by Nimrod, were trying to wreck something that enabled them to exalt themselves as God exalts himself, to be above the earth. And they too wanted to be known for being in the heavens. And, and they attempted to build this tower as an expression of their fleshly desire to be exalted as God is exalted. In a sense, this tower represented man's attempt to build a religious system for himself, a system that was devoid of God, but devoted to man himself. And that's why God eventually destroyed that tower and divided the people by creating the various languages. One Bible commentator tells us the Tower of Babel was a strong statement of self against God, and God could not allow that. It represented the religion of self versus the true spirituality that's found only in God. I saw a picture um, that actually somebody at a prophecy conference I was at that I, I do trust a lot of his work. I've not physically seen it myself. I've only seen the representation that he presented. But actually says that at the, uh, is it in, um, in The Hague, um, that there is actually a picture for the European Union that actually has a picture of the Tower of Babel being rebuilt. Interesting. Interesting. And it's these things that are, uh, you know, when you consider these things here that we see in the historic account that are associated with Babylon. And as time has passed and Babylon grew into this historical empire of its own, these kind of evil associations continued with that, with that empire throughout the scriptures, especially in the prophetic scriptures. We find physical Babylon portrayed in this negative light, reflecting these kinds of evil, human-centered, rebellious kinds of things, you see. But the physical Babylon has long since passed, as John is writing this account. So he can't be talking about the physical Babylon in this passage. So although there are some who believe that during the end times, Babylon will again be reestablished in a physical sense by Antichrist, and there do appear to be scriptural evidences and support for that kind of view, which we'll get to a little bit later in our study a few weeks from now. More likely, in the greater sense, this reference here in this verse, though, is a reference to the spirit to Babylon in a spiritual context, in a spiritual context. You see, Babylon is often referred to in the scriptures in a spiritual context. It's often associated with, and it's used to symbolically portray a, a false system of religion or a false system of spirituality or a false system of, of, of religion that perpetuates and exalts the human spirit and rejects God. Throughout the scriptures, we find Babylon associated with the rebellious nature of human beings against God in this form, associated with unspeakable spiritual adultery and, and worship of God's creatures instead of the true creator himself. It's about human exaltation and not God exaltation. And in the end times, Babylon, in this spiritual sense, will reach its pinnacle as it's going to culminate in the false religious system that Antichrist and the false prophet will be putting into place. And we'll get into that a whole lot more when we get to chapter 17, as we'll deal with what John terms as the harlot or the whore of Babylon, terms that'll be used to depict this false system of religion that'll overtake the world during the tribulation, a system of religion. I'm not so sure we're not watching form before our very eyes in the world in which we live today. I'll save that till then. 
But chapter 17 and chapter 19 in, in particular will give us a full description of what this spiritual context of Babylon is all about. And it'll give us a more detailed description of this fall that's now being talked about here in Revelation 14. But for now, suffice it to say that this reference simply seems to be to the fall of this false religious system that will be established and exist during the earth's final days, of which this angel is simply proclaiming its ultimate doom. Everybody tracking with me on that? Okay. Now just think about this for a minute. There is coming a day, and I I do think of this often, especially as I see stuff happening in our world spiritually today. There is coming a day when there will no longer be a multitude of religions competing for people's attention and loyalties and, and worship, as there won't be multiple religions or multiple religious systems to choose from. Not because we're all going to finally come together and do the kumbaya thing, which some would love to see in our world today, which is man-centered, not God-centered, but because there is a day coming when God will destroy everything that's false. He's going to get rid of everything that's false, completely destroy it, and replace it only with that which is true. And what's true? We already discussed it. It's Jesus, and it's Jesus alone. There's no other way, no other truth, no other way to life, no form of religion, no form of spirituality other than that which he brings to our lives as we place our faith in him and him alone. What a great day that will be. You're not going to have to decide what church you want to attend, right? Do I want to go to the Brethren Church? Do I want to go to Baptist Church? Do I want to go over there to Yehus at Calvary Chapel? Where do I want to go? We're just going to worship at one altar because that altar will be purified, you see. And our thinking spiritually will have been purified because Jesus will come and do that. What a great day that's going to be when all those who will be living on the earth are going to come together and sing praises to God alone. Amen. But look out, because John now sees another angel that he introduces to us in verse 9. He says, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. John now sees this third angel who's flying around the earth proclaiming yet a different message. This angel warns that anyone who bows down to, anyone who worships the beast and his image, which we discussed previously in the previous passages, and who receive his mark, remember that 666, whatever that portrays, receives his mark of loyalty, which is declaring their loyalty to him, he says unequivocally that they will face eternal punishment by God. Now again, just as noted a couple of weeks ago, here's proof text that people will know exactly what they're doing when they take Antichrist's mark upon themselves. There's a clear connection between worshiping the beast and his image and receiving the mark on their foreheads and their hands. This isn't just about survival economically. This is about worshiping someone who's giving to them what it is that they want. What it's telling us here is that nobody's going to do this casually or accidentally. The connection between worshiping the beast and taking the mark of the beast will be clear enough to them when they do it. When they take their mark upon themselves, they'll be taking it willingly as a loyalty sign to him. And, and here now we learn that when they take it, they'll also take it knowing full well what it's all about and what the consequences of taking it will ultimately be because this angel will be flying around the world making it perfectly clear to them. If you take this mark, this is going to happen to you, you see. 
He'll be making it clear that this mark is a sign of worship of the Antichrist and and of their loyalty to him. He'll be making it clear that to take the mark is to choose to reject God. He'll be letting them know that by taking the mark, it will result in God's wrath being poured out upon them in both this life and in the next, resulting in God's eternal rejection of them for doing that. Now look again at what John tells us that this angel will be proclaiming to them because it's powerful stuff. He says in verse 10, this angel will be telling them, he himself shall also drink of the wine of wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Now the cup, which this angel is symbolically referring to, is the cup of God's wrath. And he tells us it's God's wrath. The image here is that this cup, which represents God's wrath, is like undiluted wine mixed with spices to make it even stronger yet. It's the hardest cider that anybody could drink, in a sense. In other words, it's full strength in every sense of the meaning. The idea that God holds a cup of wrath, which he makes those under judgment drink, is expressed more than 13 times in the Bible. More than 13 times. Examples, Psalm 75, verse 8, and Jeremiah 25, 15. They use this particular language about God's wrath. It says in Psalm 75, and verse 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. You know, the dregs are the leftover residue in the bottom. You say, man, the, the world drinks it fully in. But what it is, is it's God's wrath. Jeremiah 25 and verse 15 says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. He's talking about pending judgment of his wrath being poured out upon them. This cup clearly represents God's wrath. Now you'll also note that this is the same cup that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 26 and verse 39 when speaking of his own life, he said this, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The cup that Jesus is referring to here in Matthew, and that night before his crucifixion, he wasn't just talking about the cup of, 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 of the, the thing he was going to experience on the cross physically. He was talking about the cup of God's wrath, which we deserve to drink, but which he ultimately stepped into our place and willingly submitted to it and fully drank upon himself, drank it on our behalf. It was the cup that he was not forced to drink, but that he willingly chose to drink from on our behalf. But, but here's in the day that John is describing the enemies of God, they're going to have no choice. They're going to have no choice. It won't be a question of willingness as the cup of God's wrath will be forced upon them by God himself as he pours out his judgment upon them for the rebellion against him. And make no mistake about it, this cup will be forced upon all who make themselves an enemy of God by refusing his offer of peace through Jesus Christ. Not only in that day, but I would argue even now. You see, if you reject Jesus, there's nothing but the wrath of God that's awaiting you. Scripture's clear about that. But note also the wine that John says will be in that cup from which those who have followed the beast will be forced to drink. The cup represents God's wrath, but the wine represents his anger. Represents his anger. Two different things. Both connected, but two different things. It's not just referring to some emotional outburst of anger, but it's the Greek word thymos, which represents a passionate form of anger. When you think of thymos, you think of thermal, don't you? It's, it's, it's almost like thermal, like it's building and boiling and, and welling up within. And, and this is significant because normally the Greek word most often associated with anger in the New Testament is the word orge, 
orge. Orge is literally interpreted as anger from a settled disposition. The English word for this kind of anger is indignation, we would say. But thymos is of a completely different venue. It's something far stronger, far more emotional. It's a word that describes an extreme, boiling to the point of, of, of overflow kind of anger. It's a word that's only used 11 times in the New Testament, and 10 of those 11 times are used here in the book of Revelation. It's like God's anger has reached its peak as we study these events in Revelation. And it's a fitting word to be used because we're going to see the pinnacle of God's anger in the judgments as these things culminate on the earth. As you, as you come to understand the meaning behind these, these various words that deal with God's wrath and his anger towards men, aren't you glad that you've given your life to Jesus? Aren't you glad that you're not under these things? Aren't you glad that the scripture proclaims in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ? I am. I'm so grateful that we don't have to experience this because in Christ, we no longer under God's wrath or his indignation or his anger in any form or any longer, but we've been delivered from these things. What a blessing it is to know that despite our sinfulness at times, God never gets angry at us like this anymore. He might get angry as a father gets angry with a child, but that's just for our correction, not for our punishment and, and, and judgment and what comes with it in this day. What a wonderful reality this is. But know what this angel says that awaits those who reject Jesus and are under God's wrath and who are the objects of God's wrath. He says in verses 10 and 11, he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the very presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here's a passage that does away with the notion that hell is not a, a real place because there is no way you can spiritualize the reality of, of hell that's being proclaimed here by this angel. There's no way you can do it. In fact, note some important things that we learn about hell from this proclamation. Number one, he says, hell is a place of real torment. It's a place of real torment, torment that is painful and repulsive. He declares that it's a place where those who go there will be tormented with fire and brimstone, a form of burning sulfur, almost in a sense. Second, he says that hell is a place presided over by Jesus himself. Ooh, scripture makes clear that those who, who, who are sent to suffer there will suffer in the presence of the lamb. Did you ever note that before? They'll suffer in the presence of the Lamb. In other words, they'll be eternally reminded of why they're there and why they're suffering because they'll always see before them the Lamb of God that they rejected. It'll be a continual reminder. I've made mistakes in my life. And I don't know about you, but some mistakes that we make in this life, there are reminders that we can't escape. Some, for some people, it's scars. They did something stupid. They drank and drive and got in an accident. Or they killed someone, and they can never escape that. No matter how repentant they are, it's always before them, you see. And this day for these people, this will be the biggest mistake of all. And Jesus will be standing there in their view, continually reminding them of what they rejected, you see. Wow. Now, I know that that's not an image of Jesus we tend to think of presiding over hell like this. But remember, you and I think of Jesus through the lens of our salvation. 
not through the lens of not being saved. We think of it through our salvation. And, and when we think of Jesus, we see him in light of the depiction he gives of himself in John three seventeen. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. That's our view. We're not condemned. So we're seeing a Jesus who does not condemn from our vantage point. But for those who reject him, they'll see a completely different side of Jesus altogether. Even though he, he tries to reach out to them in the same way that he reached out to us with love and grace, ultimately for those who reject him, he will one day present himself in a totally different way. Oh, he'll still be presenting himself as a lamb and as the lamb of God, but he'll present himself as the lamb of God that they've rejected. And as such, he'll stand before them as that continual reminder of the rejection as they suffer eternally in hell. Hell will be a continual reminder of why they're there, you see. Praise God that we who've received him don't have that view or need to fear that we will ever have that view of Jesus. We're going to be celebrating with him for eternity. Third, we learn from this that hell is a place where there is no escape and torment goes on forever and ever without even a momentary reprieve. The angel makes this very clear in verse 11. The smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. While most of us have been in situations that seemed hellish to us, terrible situations that seemed like they'd never end, they did eventually end in most cases. They do eventually end. But this hellish situation described here in these verses for these people who reject God will never end. And this dwarfs anything bad that they will have ever experienced in this life physically. And trust me, this generation that's being spoken of in this passage is going to experience some pretty hellish things upon the earth but it won't hold a candle to what eternity has in store. This is one of the reasons, again, I've said before, but why I just cringe when I hear people say of a lost loved one who did not clearly know the Lord, well, they're better off now, they've suffered so much, and now they've gone to a better place. No, they haven't. I'm sorry, no, they haven't. Not if they're not in Christ, they have not. It's important that you and I realize that hell is a very real place, a place where there'll be suffering and there'll be torment beyond what our human minds can even begin to fathom. And, and, and it's a place of suffering and torment that will never end. And we need to be firm in understanding that the Bible says that the only way to avoid this place is to receive Christ now in this life before life in this realm ends. Many people, maybe some of you cringe at the idea of thinking, well, I just don't believe that God would do this to people. I don't believe that a loving God would send people to hell like this. This is your thinking about these things. First of all, God doesn't send anyone to hell. He doesn't send anyone to hell. He just honors the choice that they have made. He proclaims the truth of it, and he says, this is the way to avoid it. You choose. He's simply going to honor the choices that people will make. And secondly, it doesn't matter whether you personally believe in hell to be a real place or not. The final word is not your belief, but the final word is what the scriptures declare. And the scriptures declare that hell is a very real place where God will allow people to send themselves if they so desire to do so and choose. Uh, fourth and finally, this angel tells us that hell is the absolute destination for those who receive the mark that Antichrist will be offering to people. Unlike those of us who live today, we still have an open door with God, right? 
I mean, unbelievers today still, as long as they're alive, they still have an open door with God. Even though someone you may know is rejecting him right now, until death comes, that door doesn't close. But with those that are living in this day that John is now seeing, that door will close. It's going to close. And the angel makes clear that what closes that door isn't some particular sin that they commit. What closes that door is this mark of loyalty that they take to Antichrist. There'll be no ability to change their mind once they've received that mark of identity and, and loyalty to the beast. Now, again, keep in mind, people will, will know the choice that they're making. It's not like they're going to do this by accident. They're going to know because this angel is going to be warning them not to do it. So if they choose to do it, it'll be by their own choice. But once they do it, they will have to live by the choice that they've made. And, and even if they reject it, they won't be able to return from that choice. What a terrible time this will be to be alive on the earth. We think choices are hard now. <laughs> People say, oh, I got so much going on in my life. I don't know if I'm ready for Jesus right now. If you think that in this life, I, I'm not saying to you, but to an unsaved person, if you think in this life that choosing Jesus is hard, Trust me, it's going to get worse in this time. Harder yet. If you've not already made that decision to place your faith in Jesus Christ, don't wait. Because you might find in waiting that you'll be one of these people that this passage is talking about. Let's conclude. Look at verse 12 and 13. Let's wrap this up. He says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. See the wonderful contrast that will now be given between this group and the rest of the saints. <laughs> There's a contrast here, how those through faithful endurance and obedience to keep themselves for Jesus, keeping their loyalty with him, despite the torment of the wicked who, who turned themselves over to Antichrist and to the system of evil that he represents. What a contrast. We can only imagine what, what courage and comfort that this, this passage will give to the embattled and persecuted saints that will live during this terrible time of human history. God clearly wants to encourage his people to be steadfast in times of trial, focused on, on what blessed rest and reward awaits them in eternity. And folks, even though we will never face the kinds of things these people will face, we too are, are, will find rest and, 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 and our works will also follow us and be the source of great reward if we'll just follow Christ with all of our hearts. If we'll just submit our loyalty completely to him and just endure in that loyalty with him, keeping our feet firmly planted upon him, even in times of difficulty and trial, as hard as that can be. There's nothing that the world, that Satan, that people, that the spirit of Antichrist in our world has to offer to you and me. Nothing, nothing. Our rest, our reward is found in Jesus Christ alone. And even though we might find ourselves being pressured, might find ourselves being tormented and persecuted by evil in this world in which we live, ultimately there's nothing. There is nothing that this world or the evil people of this world can do to us. Not a thing. We are securely protected by Jesus Christ if we are in him. Eternally protected by Jesus Christ if we are in him. So stay, stay in it with Jesus. Stay in it with Jesus. He press in even closer when things get harder. Press into him. Lean on him alone as you live your lives on this earth. And you're going to find the same kind of rest and reward. I like how he said that. You know, this is, this is the true patience. This is the patience of the saints. And for those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus Christ. Do you have your faith in Jesus today? Then stand in it. Amen. 
Thank you for joining us for another episode of Journey in the Word, a verse-by-verse teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel of the Cumberland Valley. If you would like to listen to more teachings or find out more information about us, go to www.journeyintheword.org. That's www.journeyintheword.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll tune in for our next episode as we continue our Journey in the Word.